An obsession with true crime makes us citizens, armchair cops, eager to figure out who done it, violating boundaries and ethical lines, endangering ourselves and others, and confirming biases. Welcome to Popaganda, where we invite you to come for the pop culture and stay for the abolition. I'm Shannon Perez-Darby with my co-host Tajmika Torak, and this week's episode, True Crime. Very official. It was a very official start. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Hello, Shannon. Hello, Tajmika. It's nice to see you. It's always good to see you. And I'm so excited to talk to you about true crime while also acknowledging that I am not supposed to be excited to talk to you about While we're all just holding our shared guilt <laughs> around loving this thing that is sometimes, uh, most often times, not about the best of human beings uh, or the criminal legal system or just generally life. You know, I think this topic of true crime highlights the tension of, in some ways, the entire podcast really well, which is what is it to feel compelled by something, to feel, to spend your time and energy engaging and consuming with something that you might also have complex feelings about. And I think true crime really highlights that. If there's anything I know about true crime, a lot of people consume it and particularly lots of women consume true crime. What I know is there's a there there that many people are compelled by this genre. I learned while I was going through uh, my thoughts on this that, yeah, 70% of true crime fans and hobbyists are women. And there's a lot of reasons or speculations as to why that is. Before we get into that, I am definitely curious about what your relationship to true crime is or has been. Yeah. So true crime is probably my least explored area of pop culture or of things that we have talked about. It's the place I have to really practice this curiosity because as we have talked about, I love the Kardashians. I love reality TV dating. I love many things that people have judgy feelings about that I also hear people bring to true crime. So I bring that same kind of curiosity. I haven't engaged with a lot of true crime and the primary reasons for that is actually from being a domestic violence advocate for so long that I was hearing about harm and violence that people were doing to each other at my day job. And then it just didn't feel escapist or just didn't feel nice to me to then hear about that same kind of violence in my downtime. That was a big part of why it just didn't hit for me. The second reason is of the true crime that I have seen, a lot of it is propaganda. A lot of it is just, we're trying to do justice or like the ultimate goal is to bring people into criminalization. The pro-copness of a lot of mainstream true crime, at least, was very hard for me to tolerate. The maybe one or two exceptions to that are the serial productions. Those are true crime, right? At least uh, my understanding is like they're in the category of true crime. But this category of true crime that is about supporting people who were wrongly convicted, I think that is a corner of true crime that also comes with a critique of the criminal legal system. That's been the place where I have dipped my toe in and been interested. Yeah, no, I love that. I think people engage with it for lots of different reasons. I've actually had this conversation with a lot of people who are survivors of violence that are whispering, like, I got to go home and watch Law and Order. I like can't wait to go and listen to my crime podcast. And it's always like, I don't know why I like it, but this is a thing that I really enjoy. And then we both look at each other as survivors. And we're like, why do we like this? <laughs> it doesn't actually make a lot of sense, especially when you think about the true crime genre that isn't really about improving the system or helping to advocate for people who are wrongfully convicted. And it really is more of the tabloid-esque true crime, or even the ones that are 
lighthearted and funny, like my favorite murder and things like that. I have more discomfort with that, but I won't say that I don't ingest it because I also have a really dark humor and laughing at things that scare me or make me uncomfortable is always going to be step one for me. <laughs> like I'm just going to be like, ah, and then I'm going to laugh because that's how I regulate my nervous system, apparently. And no amount of therapy, just in case anybody is wondering, no amount of therapy is going to fucking change that for me. Okay, I've tried. I've been in therapy my whole life. So, <laughs> Yeah. What's fun about doing this project with you for me that has been so joyful is also thinking about how true crime arrived in my sphere of influence. What are the things that I saw or read or participated in as a kid that led me towards having more appreciation for true crime than probably I should have. One of the first things that I thought of was the Nancy Drew books. I don't know if you ever... (laughs) (laughs) I am very familiar with the Nancy Drew books as a cultural experience. And I have many people that I grew up with who were very into Nancy Drew. They weren't books that I read, but I am very aware of their impact culturally. There's like a mystery to true crime pipeline that happened in my life. I love a good mystery. I love trying to figure something out or trying to understand why people do the things that they do. And so that was one of them. I also read Sweet Valley High. (laughs) I did read some Sweet Valley High. I wasn't deep into Sweet Valley High, but I read at least several of the Sweet Valley High books. Did you ever get to the super thriller version of Sweet Valley High? I did not. Well, today is your day because I did. (laughs) (laughs) Can't wait. I'm ready. So the super thriller version of those books veered off into mystery. It veered off into the supernatural. So some of it is this bad thing happened and some of it's like ghosts. And when I was thinking about this earlier, I was talking to my daughter about it. And I was like, I actually think this might also outside of the satanic panic that I grew up in may have been the first positive interaction that I had with witchcraft. I'm not even sure if it was this brand of mystery book for children. I think there may have been other ones that I got into because I was a heavy reader as a kid. They had the spells and like if you put a carnation in this way or if you use this crystal and all of these things and it felt very dangerous. You know, I grew up in this very churched community and so knowing that I could cast spells or use crystals even in this world of fiction felt very like ooh. So it was like this kind of intersection between mystery and also magic that just sucked me in. And then we fast forward to 1988 and probably even a little before that, because 1988 is when America is Most Wanted became sensation. It's still running, actually, with a new host. I watched a lot of America's Most Wanted as a child. Yes. So America's Most Wanted and also Unsolved Mysteries, which is now available online as well, streams. We definitely watched a lot of Unsolved Mystery. When I was looking through the history of these shows and the sort of arc of what true crime has looked like since I've been born anyway, is even in Unsolved Mysteries, it's not a show that's focused completely on crime. It's also focused on paranormal activity and even has a sort of weird Christian bent to it. Because I went back and one of the first few episodes, there is a young girl who falls off her horse and is struck with this pain that isn't resolved. And they're like, oh, we might have to institutionalize her if we can't get her pain under control. And they all prayed for her and suddenly it stopped. And and I was like, I did not remember this show had such a Christian bent to it, but it did in terms of, yes, copaganda, but also there's a strong undercurrent of very much this sort of Christian perspective on how we do justice or how we heal and move forward in our lives. That's so interesting. I hadn't really thought about paranormal or a mysticism entry into true crime or about how they are sisters or cousins to each other, which makes a lot of sense to me. And if I think about it in that way, paranormal investigation kinds of things has been TV I've watched. I definitely watched Unsolved Mysteries growing up as well in that same kind of 
something unexplained happened that is a genre of media that I like. Thinking about that as one of the offshoots of the true crime piece is actually really helpful for me to imagine. I'm so glad that I can help. (laughs) You're going to talk me into being a true crime consumer by the end of this episode. I'm going to be like, all right, I'm in. What, What should I read, listen, watch? Oh, trust me. I definitely also have recommendations um, for sure. But yeah, I started thinking about shows that I watched after that, that veered towards more fictionalized crime. There was Murder, She Wrote. There was Matlock. And then there was also In the Heat of the Night. I don't know if you remember that show that starred Sidney Poitier. It was a pretty big deal in his career. Let's just all have a moment of recognition and grief for Sidney Poitier because he was just iconic. I was never sad watching that man, just ever. So beautiful. He was very handsome, an amazing actor. And the place that he had in media and film and TV was so essential. And all the things he did. Incredible, incredible. So go watch all the Sidney Poitier movies because there are so many of them that are so good. But yes, those were kind of the first ones that I remember watching as a kid with my parents. These were the things we watched in the evenings. I don't know why other people watch true crime, but when I was doing a little bit of research on like the studies that have been done, I'm using air quotes because I didn't dig into who did the study or why it could have been true crime are us and they're just trying to sell it to us. I don't really know. (laughs) But because I already had this question of like, not just why do people, but specifically why do survivors, why do people who have experienced violence actually continue to ingest this kind of media. Because even my my kids give me a hard time, you know, when I'm watching something true crime-esque, they're like, mom, are you watching trauma again? <laughs> I'm just like, you watching your trauma shows? And I'm like, I feel attacked, but also it's not inaccurate as a framing. So one of the things that they said is that the crime content will actually break down these cases in a way that helps survivors move away from irrational fears. And that's the language they use. I wouldn't say irrational fears because what they're really talking about is how survivors of various forms of crime will blame themselves and decide that it was something that they did, right? And so when you watch multiple cases, when you're reading true crime after true crime after true crime, you know, story or novel, or you're listening to podcasts, one thing that becomes very clear is that it actually doesn't matter where you were, what you were doing, what you were wearing. In addition to that, it can feel sort of like solidarity because a lot of crime survivors don't necessarily have community after experiencing violence. Being to something that is hard or is violent that's happened is to go and learn a lot about it, is to know a lot, is to receive a lot of information as a way to feel more in control, more knowledgeable, just less unknown, because the unknown is really hard to tolerate for almost all of us. And so this piece makes tons of sense to me that one way that could be soothing is to consume a lot of information about the kinds of harms that happen. And that if you do see a pattern, and I could completely imagine that it can help with the it's not your fault feeling that so many survivors of all sorts of kind of violence have. That is the power that I really saw for support groups for survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Over and over and over again, when we were doing individual advocacy with people, it was really hard to communicate to them that their experience was personal to them, but many of the dynamics that were happening were not unique to them, that were things that were bigger than them, out of their control, had happened to many people. And in one-on-one advocacy, we really struggled to get that concept to folks. And then they would come to support group and by like support group number two, they would be like, oh my God, like three people here have my almost exact story. Every person who I talked to who had that experience found it soothing to be like, oh, okay, not that there was something wrong with me. It's not that I was bad. It's actually something that is a dynamic that is bigger than me. And that seems to help people in their healing and their integration and their meaning making of their experiences. Absolutely. And that's definitely a piece that is very attractive to me or has been the piece that has attracted my attention is it really did start with fictional stories. But then also I've already talked about my family's attention to Lifetime TV. But truly, 
as a child, that is the only access to survivor community that I had. I didn't even know the adults around me that were survivors, right? Like they were not sharing that information with me. And so being able to tap into that community in a way, not all true crime is the same. I think there's a lot of different ways that people do it. And also for me, being a child, I didn't have access to that information any other way. And Lifetime movies, they have made a lot of money on telling the true stories of survivors who have experienced domestic violence and sexual violence. And that's a big focus of their true crime because they serve mostly women who are also 70% the ones who are watching true crime media. There is still like a feeling of that undercurrent of like exploitation while also feeling like where would we universally get that information out to a large group of survivors who don't have access to support groups or therapy or even just survivor community that can actually reflect back their story and say, this is also something similar that happened to me and it happened in these ways. Also, it wasn't my fault. So therefore it couldn't be your fault, right? There's probably lots of ways that that could happen. It just hasn't yet. It just hasn't yet. Even with all the social media access that we have. One of the things about the category of true crime in this conversation is that it reminds me of this personal mission that I have, which is to get everyday people to remove the term crime for when they're talking about violence and to separate those because how we talk about things impacts how we think about them and how we organize around them and separating this idea that all violence is crime or that if something hard or bad happens, that criminalizing and that a crime framework is how we think about that and that we care about if something violent or bad or harmful happens to your personhood, to your body, regardless of whether the laws of the land say it is legal or illegal, because that is functionally what crime is, is a invented set of categories and rules that come with this infrastructure of policing criminalization. But plenty of bad things are not illegal. I talk to people a lot about domestic violence around how to separate the experience of domestic violence from the idea that it's a crime, because most of the things that someone can do to abuse another person are not a question of legality. So assault is a criminal legal question. Saying, I don't want you to hang out with your sister anymore because she's always in our business is not a question of criminality, but is a very effective tool if you're trying to control someone. This, it's like a little mini mission of mine to just keep reminding people that we care deeply about violence and the questions of violence and crime are not directly overlapped. They're actually distinct questions. And to get clear about our language, we're saying, you know, we care about violence. Crime is a category by the laws of our lands that says, you know, what can be criminalized. And I care mostly about what people experience as harmful, less about what the laws of the land say are legal or illegal. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to add to that, so much of the heartbreak of survivors navigating the system is doing what they've been told to do, is naming that something was a crime and discovering that even if it does match the definition, there's not enough evidence in the mind of the prosecutor to actually go forward with a case. And so one of the first things we have to do when we're working with youth who are engaged with the criminal legal system is say, I understand what it is that you are hoping for. And I also need to prepare you that the criminal legal system may not be the place that will be able to validate for you that this was a crime. They may not be able to actually provide you with the justice that you want and need that is heartbreaking. And also, I would feel neglectful to not actually prepare you and talk through how are we going to navigate this when the police come back and say that it wasn't crime enough according to their standard? What are we going to do when the judge says that it's not crime enough in order to support you through what you feel like you need in terms of justice? It is definitely a language issue because it tricks survivors. And not just survivors, 
We just experienced Carly Russell being missing and not um, being honest about where she was and watching people, Black people included, calling for her criminalization because it was a crime in their minds to use the state's money and, you know, under false pretenses. And so I'm also very aware of how quickly we criminalize one another because we have an idea in our head that doing anything that opposes the state or causes the state any type of inconvenience or challenge as a crime. And it must be prosecuted. You did a crime. And as a side note, my son, one time we were driving down the road and he looked out the window and he saw someone jaywalking. I don't even know who told him jaywalking was a crime. And he goes, mom, that person is doing illegal. <laughs> oh, baby. So in our house, that's what we say. We say, oh, that person didn't illegal. <laughs> I don't even remember how little he was, but I just remember him like sitting in the back of the car and being like, that person is doing an illegal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sweetheart. I'm just so glad that you talked about the situation with Carly Russell here because I just thought the TikTok that you made about that was so beautiful of what does it take to bring grace to somebody and to allow particularly black women to make mistakes and to get to mess up publicly without the whole weight of society coming down and crushing them. And that each of us should imagine the worst thing we've ever done and what happened if millions of people in the world had a bunch of opinions about that. And I know the worst thing I've ever done, I would not want to be plastered all over the media. And I would want everyone to have the grace to struggle, to make mistakes and not have everyone come for them. And I thought you just shared that so brilliantly and beautifully. Thank you. I want to talk about this time around about how we participate in creating true crime and how we participate just generally with the criminal legal system. I want to talk about how Black women created the sexual violence movement and how I think it's really interesting in this moment around Carly Russell, how many people are saying that she is setting Black women back as if the bridge wasn't built on our back. Black women paid the dues for Carly Russell to have grace. Not only have we paid the taxes that afforded for us to look for Carly Russell, Black women should be looking for Carly Russell regardless because that's what we do. It is our ancestral DNA that we are the people who are protecting one another from sexual violence. We are the icon. This is work we've been doing since our feet hit Turtle Island. We've had to be our own advocates outside of the state. And so I feel deeply offended by people who are saying that she is setting Black women back as if Black women haven't been at the forefront of this movement in ways that no one else has been for us. I'm ready to fight people over that. But anyway, we're going to talk about more true crime real quick. <laughs> we talked about the seminar Copaganda episode but the way that people's understanding of the criminal legal system is shaped by our idea of cops, you know, talking about the mob too, and some of these pieces where our understanding of the mob is actually these days highly developed by pop culture, and that there's like a self-reflective conversation with who's modeling what after who now. And I think that that is part of a role of how we talk about crime. It's why I care about this differentiation between crime and violence, but also in the oh, truly disastrous mess that is how people are talking about commercial sexual exploitation of children around human trafficking, the conservative way in which there has been a moral panic that has been created really largely invented to get people to be afraid of, quote unquote, harm against children that is largely just literally made up at the scale and the kinds that they're talking about. And then like any moral panic has been sensationalized. And it takes this misunderstanding of domestic and sexual violence. It takes a misunderstanding of the criminal legal system and this sensationalizing that everyone is prepared for. That if you say, you know, a child is being locked in a basement, that then people will just do anything you say if you say that's happening, often without proof. 
And so that happens in the landscape of many children are being harmed around this country in a way that we don't want to talk about, not because they're being stolen off the street by quote unquote traffickers, but are being harmed by their family, by people in their homes, by people that are known to them. And we don't want to talk about that. That's intolerable. But we would love to talk about anti-trafficking and child sex slaves. And I think the way we talk about true crime and the way we have this sensationalizing thing adds to the moral panic that is how the sort of anti-trafficking mess has developed, especially in a pop culture conversation. Yeah. And there's two things that that makes me think of. One of the things that I read about when I was doing research about true crime is that most of the true crime that we ingest is about murder, even though only 20% of what is prosecuted in the country is actually murder. That I didn't know that. I also felt like murder just must be happening just everywhere because there's all these shows that are showing things about murder. So it must just be happening all the time, right? I thought that was really important framing. I often encourage people when they're looking at trying to reduce police budgets, a really important thing to look at is what are they actually policing? Because a lot of the times, if you go and look at the statistics, they're not solving murders. They're not intervening on domestic violence. They're definitely not intervening on sexual violence. And so what else are they doing? They're policing property. They are policing noise ordinances. They're responding to non-emergency incidents, whether it's medical or a car crash. There's a lot of things that police do, and the majority of it is not related to either responding to violence, intervening in violence, or actually solving these cases. A lot of true crime is based on mystery, is that we have someone who has been violently harmed in one way or the other, and there are people, many times there are suspects that we're all wondering, could it be this person, could it be that person, and it's just not resolved because there's not enough evidence, or as we've discussed, even if there's evidence, it doesn't meet the standard that would allow for the criminal legal system under their own legal terms and definitions to move forward with a prosecution. So there's that piece. And then there's also the piece that when COVID, when everything started to shut down, people started really panicking about children. What's going to happen to the children? They're going to be stuck at home. They're going to be getting abused. And while, of course, if you are stuck in your home 100% of the time, you don't have school, sports, all the ways that children are able to not just save themselves and get a moment away from their home, but also cope. Those are coping mechanisms. They were definitely my coping mechanisms. Even though I wasn't experiencing violence in the home anymore, I was still healing. And I was doing that through choir, through drama, through cheerleading, through all these things that were extracurriculars. And so there's that intense pressure of not being able to leave their home. I want to just acknowledge that that is very real. And also, I was like, it is so nice of you to join the party. That is when most of the harm happens. And when you are looking at our current legislative process and how many trans kids are in danger right now because of their home life, specifically with parents who do not accept them, support their bodily autonomy, are fighting school districts, even when we're talking about critical race theory, right? Families... Families of origin are actually the spaces where harm is happening more often. And if it isn't the family of origin, it's somebody within the network of the family of origin that's causing the violence. And so while human trafficking is absolutely something we need to be worried about, there are specific ways that that happens that is not well represented by what's become sort of the popular cultural knowledge of human trafficking and the idea that we can just like kick down doors and like rescue all these people. Sure, that does happen very, very rarely. But the point of intervention is actually in your community. And I would even say for um, our BIPOC youth, it is more about making sure that they have access to the financial support that they need and affordable housing having schools that are well-funded, having mental health services that are well-funded, it all goes back to the same stuff that we've been hearing since we were little, right? If kids don't have nothing to do, they get into trouble. 
And really, it's not about the kids getting into trouble. It's the fact that they are more vulnerable when we don't provide a community that meets their needs and gives them things that keep them safe, keep them supported, and prioritize their well-being and does not trust that their family can be everything that they need. Because quite honestly, that has never been true. And it only becomes less true as we watch folks actively work to crush babies, like, and who they are and what they want in the world. Yeah. Most human trafficking that happens is people being exploited for their labor. That is the highest amount of trafficking that happens. That is the kind of human trafficking we hear the least about, but it is the most people impacted. And we almost never hear about people who are being exploited for their labor and being trafficked for their labor who are then experiencing sexual violence in that context. We know there are many people, and particularly women, who are being exploited for their labor in homes as laborers, like physical laborers in the world, as farm workers, who are then experiencing sexual violence because they are vulnerable for not being supported, for not having mechanisms to get the support and care. There may be language barriers and then are experiencing sexual violence in that way. When we, in a pop culture way, seem suddenly very urgently interested in human trafficking, but we're only focusing on a largely made-up story that is very far away from what many people's lived experiences is, we actually make invisible the real harm, which is at a scale that we all have a role in playing. And that is the part where when we tell made-up stories that are not transparent about their intent, that we hide the real harm that we could actually should get concerned about. We should all care when people are being exploited in any way, when someone doesn't have the autonomy over their labor, over their money, over their bodies. Yes, I care urgently about that question. And I care urgently about telling that story in a realistic and honest way that's right by people's experience, but that is not in service of a conservatizing idea that is actually sex negative, that actually isn't centering people who have actual experiences, but is to make conservative policies that are actually about controlling people's bodies instead of about bodily autonomy. That's right. You know, I just want to add to that, that these folks oftentimes are undocumented. So if they do seek help, there are consequences for actually trying to advocate for themselves in lots of different ways. And we don't create a mechanism to protect them. Remember when R. Kelly was sentenced to prison and there were so many people joking about him being sexually assaulted or raped in prison. And I remember thinking about that and saying to people that what you're saying is that you hope for someone to become a rapist. That's actually what you're saying. Like, if you think about what you're hoping for is that you are hoping that someone is willing to be a rapist in order for you to feel like R. Kelly gets what is due. And the important thing to know about that is that a person who does that kind of harm is not only going to do that kind of harm on your bequest in a targeted way. This is not a heat-seeking missile that you are sending out into the world. And I think about that in terms of this conversation, because like, if we don't create ways for people to be protected, then we are creating ways for people to be exploited. We are creating a community that is exploitative. What part of the world do you want to belong to? Do you want to belong to a space where Everyone is protected regardless of the language they speak, their country of origin, their class, their sex, their gender, their disability, like all of those things. Or who are you willing to sacrifice so that some people get to exploit other people? Like which one of these people is undeserving of protection? Because the problem is, even though you choose this group or this group, this exploitative group is less picky which means they're going to exploit anybody that they can get something from. So why would we create an environment where even a little bit, a little bit of exploitation is allowable when we know what the impact of that is on the greater community? Because that person is exploiting their family, they're exploiting their local community. They're gonna do all of that. That sort of neglect, Neglect is the word that keeps coming up for me right now because that's what it feels like. It feels like we have systematically 
abandoned folks, yes. But then when we have the information and we twist it using pop culture or using these sensationalized stories to get people's attention, to focus on something that isn't actually the real danger, then we are, like you said, we're invisibilizing the people that need the support, but we're also creating this wide open space for people to continually replicate these types of harms without consequences, whether in their interpersonal relationship or within the criminal legal system. Yep. (sighs) Yeah, that's depressing. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the other thing about the true crime genre, on a lighter note, is have you watched Only Murders in the Building? I actually have that in my list of things. (laughs) (laughs) Because in some ways, I feel like my understanding of true crime podcasts is actually just what I imagine is the like the farce they're doing and only murders in the building. And so that's what I imagine now. Every time I think of a, a true crime podcast, I think about how they're portrayed on that show. And it always makes me giggle. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. So I imagine like Tina Fey and a like soft NPR voice talking about true crimeness. It's like a nice softening entry, like a comedy entry into being like, I love the humor and the like referential parody that they're building into that show. How well do you know your neighbors? You see many of them every day. But have you ever wondered what goes on behind their doors? Are you associated with the deceased? No, no. We're neighbors in the building. Mm -hmm. So you don't know him? Just in passing. Not his passing. No, yes. When we passed by him. Before he passed. That's right. We find the right connection, and all this cracks open. I can't tell if I want it to be nothing or for it to be something. We began with the question, how well do you know your neighbors? Turns out the ones you thought you knew best might be the ones you know the least. Every true crime story is actually true for someone. And this is just occurring to you. I think we should just hit him with the charm. Good. Excellent. So I'll take the lead on this. Excuse me? Well, I can turn on the charm. Is it on now? It's swarming up. Yeah, no, that show is really good. And I think what I came across that I thought was interesting is I came across an article that talks about how um, only murders in the building is also a really great example of how having black cops isn't necessarily helpful. <laughs> Amazing. I know. Amazing. I know. I was like, oh, yeah, I could see that. Um, <laughs> right, lesbian black cop. Institutionally, she did not have the, what she needed to help them out. No, she couldn't help them. And in many ways, she has been subverting. She doesn't want them to be a part of it, but she's also not solving the crime. You know, and it was very interesting. And I, I like that framing because I think that is what pop culture can provide us is whether it's fictionalized or we are talking more true crime, nonfiction content. There is a lot of pieces of it that really do put a focus on what is this criminal legal system and why does it operate like this? And what, how did this happen? How did we get here? One of the shows that I really love that has a lot of really rich depth to it is Mind Over Murder. And it's about the Beatrice Six. I made a TikTok about it because I was like, if you ever want to watch a documentary that basically shows you that the cops ain't shit, this is the one. This is the one. This lovely woman, a grandmother, she was well-regarded in this small town community, was found murdered in her apartment one night. And they don't know who did it. It was a really scary scene. And they somehow decide that there are these suspects. It's these six people who also happen to be the town's misfits. We're very familiar with how policing happens across the country. There's one specific cop He legit is so terrible. They have video clips of him interviewing these folks in ways that the attorney that eventually gets them a class action suit, like a winning suit, he basically is saying that you can tell that this police officer is 
coaching them to give the answers that he wants. And so there are moments where he's interviewing them and they're giving him new material and he doesn't respond in any type of enthusiastic way because he's already prepped them to give him the information that he wants. There are parts of this film where you learn that there are people who have significant mental illness who are a part of this investigation. It was possible to do DNA testing, and the prosecuting attorney chose not to because he was so convinced. He Well, really, he knew what he was doing, and also he wanted to convict somebody for this murder. They end up prosecuting these folks who do go to prison. And they have not caught the person who murdered this woman still. It's a really strong documentary. The storytelling is really beautiful. If you can make a beautiful story out of something like this, but the director, she just does a really great job. She does most of the interviews. But what I find that is so profound and is part of the reason why I watch true crime is that she really covers the community's response and how everybody in the community at first is like, hang them high. You know what I mean? Like these people did it. Get them out of here straight to prison. The whole community believes this police officer and he's really lauded in the community, which is why I probably need to say his name. Bert Searcy is adamant in his belief that these people are guilty. And even when we get all the way to the end, he's still adamant. Even after everything, they've been exonerated. But what I think is really interesting is the director also films the community's response, not just in the way that they want these people to go to jail, but in the years as this information becomes known, they write a play. They write a play about the whole situation and act it out for the town. I can't say it's in the way that it happened, but, you know, it was dramatic telling of what happened to sort of bridge the gap. As this information was coming out, people didn't want to believe it. They had decided that these people were guilty. They had their people. So then they moved on. They didn't have to think about it anymore. The people who went to prison and their families were sort of like on the outside. And then we have people who were impacted by the violence. So Helen Wilson's family, they're devastated. They lost this beloved elder. And there was this clear line in the sand. If you believed the Beatrice Six, then you were bad. And if you were a part of the people who lost someone, you were good. And Bert Searcy was sort of like this savior, right? Like he came in, he found the bad guys, he put them in prison, and he was seen as a heroic figure. We start finding out in this documentary that the police psychologist that was brought in to help the Beatrice Six discover repressed memories of having committed the murder. We should have a whole episode that is the satanic panic one, the fakeness of the period of time where we thought repressed memories was a thing that is not a thing. The psychologist that the police hired to come in and help them discover these repressed memories was also one of the Beatrice Sixes actual therapist, was also a police deputy. Well, think about that. Being a therapist and a police deputy and having both conflicting role, like the conflict of interest of that is really intense. I have a strong opinion about social work cops, even knowing one. I understand the sort of idea of being on the inside and resolving things. I cannot they're, they don't go together. Like you cannot be a cop and also be a social worker and do either one of those things well in this current framework. And watching this case through this documentary and seeing that even when they're asking him about his role, they were like, that opinion, was that your opinion as a psychologist or was that your opinion as a member of law enforcement? And he was like, well, it wasn't my 
opinion as a psychologist are like, so, oh, that was your opinion as a cop. And then this one was because of this. He couldn't even really answer the questions in either profession well. That's really scary when you think about the fact that the folks that they were dealing with, one in particular that was very vulnerable in terms of their mental health. So the most vulnerable was the one that this psychiatrist actually met with and worked on the repressed memories with. It's very sad to the point that when they filed the lawsuit, she would not participate because she still believed that she had been there. She still could not believe that she was not there because there were people that she trusted around her that convinced her that she just forgot, that she just didn't remember. Eventually she got there. Eventually she got there. She had a separate attorney for that reason, and they did win. They won a significant amount of money, but only after one of the members had passed away, the one who had led the charge to getting them exonerated and taking them through this class action suit. It was so heartbreaking. I mean, and even when they're talking about their experiences in prison and how much violence they experienced in prison, oh, it's excruciating. It's excruciating to watch, to bear witness to how they were accused because someone dreamed that they had been there. It has real flavors of satanic panic stuff where people are saying, yes, I had a vision that my child was being abused by Satanists. Oh, we uncovered repressed memories. And then when you actually go back and scrutinize any of that is just entirely made up, used to really criminalize people. is isn't just like a fun side story of like, oh, people thought there were Satanists who were abusing children. People were prosecuted based on this moral panic. And it has that same kind of piece where the evidence starts to get real sketchy. Yeah. The attorney who represented them in the class action suit said they had never gotten to someone with O positive blood, it probably would have been the Beatrice 7 or 8 or 10 or 11, because they just kept arresting people and trying to find someone with not just not the DNA, too, to be clear, not the DNA, the blood type. So DNA, it was still really early for DNA, but it was possible. They weren't they weren't bothered by that. They were just like, Bert Cersei was like, as long as they have O positive, or I can't remember which one it was, but as long as they have that blood type, that's it. That's done. So the names of the Beatrice Six, just so we can lift their names because I'm really terrible with the names, but the names of the Beatrice Six are Joseph White, Thomas Winslow, Ada Joanne Taylor, Deborah Sheldon, James Dean, and Kathy Gonzalez. Deborah Sheldon is the one who was made to believe that she had repressed memories. There's no way I could go through this whole story and do it justice. People just really need to go watch it because it really is that good. And there is a coming together of the community. They all recognize that this horrible thing happened and that those people who get to claim being victimized by this moment actually include the Beatrice Six and their families. And they've had meetings together where they have embraced one another and acknowledged that loss. What I think is really profound and important to name is that even though the family of Helen Wilson extended grace and forgiveness to Bert Searcy and acknowledged that he was just trying to solve a case, even if he went about it the wrong way, right, listen, I'm not them, but this is what they're doing. No, it's not my place to decide who forgives or doesn't forgive about something I didn't experience. Yeah. Going back to your earlier comments about police showing up in lots of different children's ways, I think there is, a, there is a lot of grace given to the police that maybe should not be. And there is a reason why that I think is worth exploring and talking about because they were willing to do that. And Bert Searcy is still dying on the hill that the Beatrice Six are guilty. Because they also have relationship with him, right? Like, this is a small town. This is not just like some random detective that doesn't talk to them. This is their neighbor, right? And so they probably have a much deeper relationship than most people would have with the person who investigated a crime that happened in their community. He wouldn't even watch the documentary back with a director. He was so indignant. It reminded me of a child having a temper tantrum that he wouldn't engage with the content. 
very much dismissive of the emotional labor that the community has been invested in to try to make right this intense wrong. It stole from them significant years out of their life where they could have been, you know, making their life, going to school or not, getting a job, having a career, having a family, shit, owning a fucking pet. There's so much that you don't get to do incarcerated, especially if you are in prison for murder, that these people did not get a chance to do. They did not get a chance to be with their family around the holidays. None of that stuff happened for them. And a lot of that is because Bert Searcy did terrible police work, terrible investigation, Investigating. Well, no, he did great police work. He did not do, <laughs> if we're being honest, he did great police work. He did not actually solve the mystery, though. And the consequences of that were very intense. And he would not, could not acknowledge that he even possibly, Shannon, he wasn't even like, oh, maybe I could. No, absolutely not. These people are guilty. And I was right. And all of you knuckleheads are wrong. And it's terrible. It makes me think about what happens when we are ungrounded, unaccountable. The embodiment of someone who has to be right despite all information, despite relational requests to be curious or to think differently, that that is a certain move. And that whenever I watch people who couldn't possibly take in new information or their thing just has to be right, and so you're just going to double, triple down, it does have a certain kind of embodiment that is just what I hear you saying, which is just like, I will die on that hill regardless of every thoughtful attempt to introduce any new information. And that in some ways, if you aren't curious, if you aren't grounded, if you aren't in accountable relationships with others, it actually requires you to triple down and get more rigid instead of more curious or flexible. I could really feel that in what you were saying about Bart's relationship to this issue. He just had to be rigid about it because for whatever reason, I don't know, couldn't let go of this idea he had about what it was. Even in the in investigation and prosecution process, even if we're just following the rules of the state, they already knew through blood and semen analysis that no one who was being convicted for this crime were a part of that evidence. They had forensic evidence that that wasn't true. The police uh, psychiatrist Outside of him convincing folks about repressed memories, they also made threats that they were all going to get the death penalty if they didn't admit to doing this thing. And they also incriminated each other. They were not necessarily even on the radar of law enforcement, but because of the threats, they were naming their own friends. Like it was just, it's terrible. When I think about not just what is it about true crime that attracts me, it's more about like, how am I watching it now versus how I was sort of cultured into watching it, right? Because there's a difference. There's a difference in how I engaged with the content as a child who was just watching it alongside their parents. Um, even in my young adulthood, I wasn't watching it for the same reasons. I would say that I was definitely seeking community in my young adulthood, but I was not critiquing policing as a structure or the criminal legal system or thinking about it as an abolitionist. And so now when I'm looking at the kind of content that I'm watching, I'm doing a couple of things. Number one, I'm definitely paying way more attention to how the criminal legal system operates. What does it do? How do these things happen? How do they happen so often? I feel like it makes me a better abolitionist in some ways where I can speak to things that I haven't experienced. I've never been in prison. I've never been incarcerated. I don't actually have the lived experience of someone who has been engaged with this system through interrogation, through surveillance. Well, I mean, I think maybe that ship has sailed, but surveillance maybe a little bit, but the rest of it, no. And so that part is very informative in movement when we're thinking about strategy, when we're thinking about what we do when we encounter law enforcement, when we have to seek legal advice and counsel, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. These are all things that in some true crime are made visible. I have always sat with the question of what is it that made my dad choose to try to reclaim power by 
abusing me. Where did that path begin? And how are other folks making violent choices? The spoiler alert here is that it's violence, right? Violence begets violence begets violence. And on top of that, it is our serial abandonment of one another. That when someone causes violence, they are pushed out of community. When someone experiences violence, they often are pushed out of community. When I'm looking at these you know, shows, books, podcasts, the things I'm listening for, to me still harkens back to what is this mystery of like how we become violent, how we tend to violence and harm, how we tend to one another when we're in those kinds of cycle or how we don't and what those gaps create and what those gaps make possible for like how people continue to either do violence and or experience violence. You don't necessarily only do one of those things, right? So those are two reasons that I still engage with it that I feel like are very valuable. So I'm curious, have I convinced you? (laughs) Yes. One of the other pieces of, I'm going to call it true crime adjacent media is the Kitty Genevieve episode of You're Wrong About. So You're Wrong About is one of my top favorite podcasts that I have enjoyed over these years. And they did an episode about Kitty Genevieve. Kitty Genevieve was a person who was sexually assaulted and murdered in the 1960s in New York. It got a lot of media attention and the harm that had happened to her was part of the case that was made and later popularized the bystander effect. The original story is that there were 30 some odd people who were watching from the apartment buildings and didn't do anything. That that was the story that got told in newspapers and that got popularized. And this episode of You're Wrong About that I really recommend folks listen to is uh, Sarah Marshall really doing a deep dive into that's just not what happened. There was a sensationalization around that murders were happening in New York City and people were standing by doing nothing. And that was not what happened. And so the reality of the situation is that actually many people called 911. People yelled while she was dying. A neighbor and friend came and sat with her and cared for her. That many people actually activated in response to the violence that happened. And because of our stories about crime and because of the sensationalizing idea that someone could just be going through the streets, raping and murdering people, and you people would do nothing, that that was the story that people were trying to tell that wasn't actually what happened. And just the pain of also then how the life of this person and her death got overshadowed by the sensationalizing idea of the crime of this criminal doing this harm and no one acting has all the true crime pieces, right? Where it's describing the violence that's happening to someone and the context and the who was arrested and who did it kinds of pieces. But from these values aligned place to be able to say, hey, the life of this person mattered. The question of crime is not actually our central piece here. And that when we focus on sensationalization of crime, what we also lost in those stories was the human ways that people did show up. My understanding is that the story of the friend sitting with her and being with her while she passed away was just completely lost, right? So that could be this a very touching story of how we're showing up for each other, how she wasn't alone in her last moments. And that only came out years later from that person doing an interview with somebody. When there's values aligned folks who are saying, I care about what happens to folks and I care about how the stories we tell about what happens is impacted by our values. That's my on-ramp. I can get down there. And so I've really appreciated this more complex piece that's like helping me think more expansively and less reactively about the category, moving past the category to get curious about how we talk about crime, violence in pop culture. You know, what does that say about how we're orienting? And so I appreciate you taking me on that journey. Truly what I'm trying to do when I'm looking at true crime that isn't aligned necessarily with my values and it just happens to be a thing that I'm watching, I really am still trying to trick myself into believing that if I have enough information, then violence will not happen to me or the people I love, right? Which is absolutely a fallacy. I think there are a lot of people who are trying to imagine a safer world 
for themselves through these things. The truth is that true crime is not the place where we create community safety. There are tools that can be withdrawn from it. There are ways that it can be done in ethical ways that could be more instructive towards moving in that direction. But using it as a place where we imagine safety or that we create fictional version of how to stay safe is not going to get us there. It's actually in community, which is not surprising that we as humans who live in this police state are turning towards media and away from one another and trying to create safety because we know how it's going to start. We know how it's going to end. And unfortunately, that is not how community works when it comes to navigating harm reduction uh, and violence. support propaganda, please like, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. It really makes a difference. <laughs>